Amen. If you have your Bibles, let's open again to the Gospel of Luke. Um, the book of Luke is the third book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Uh, Luke chapter 9. We're going to read a familiar story. Um, even if you weren't raised in the church, you probably heard about this particular miracle uh, of Jesus. As we begin, um, some food for thought. Uh, with the new always comes an adjustment period. Anytime you do something new, uh, at some point you need a, a period to adjust to that new thing. Like when you move to a new city, um, you don't look at the map and have it memorized. It takes time. It takes some familiarity. It takes experience. Or, or let's just say, hypothetically, you have three children and you feel like your family's full and you're done and the Lord decides to surprise you with a fourth child a little later on down the road, even after you gave away, you know, all of your baby stuff, that's new, and that takes some time to adjust, again, hypothetically. In the, in this, in, in the Gospels, in Matthew and Mark and in Luke, Jesus is doing something new. He's doing something new, and, and so this is why we're, we're, we're you know, we're not going to give the Pharisees, the, the Greeks, the Jews a hard time, because anytime there's something new, you, you kind of need an adjustment period. I mean, for, for hundreds of years, you know, the, the temple, you know, to a, a Jew was the place where heaven and earth kissed, right? Um, they always associated the presence of God with the temple of God, but now that Jesus has showed up, God Himself has shown up. The temple is now no longer brick and mortar. It's not a place. The temple is a person. That's new, that's going to take some time to, to adjust, right? Uh, for centuries, the, the, the purity laws in the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus kind of ruled what was clean in Israel and what was unclean. And, and now that Jesus is on the scene in the Gospels, not only is, you know, are, are people worried about, about catching um, unrighteousness or uncleanness from other people, now Jesus, if you touch him or engage with him, you can catch his cleanness, his righteousness, his goodness. That's new. And that takes some adjusting. For centuries, the people would, would take their sacrifices to the temple, offer them up, and that smoke would rise. And, and as the psalm would say, that, that smoke would, would fill the nostrils of God and would please God. You know, for forgiveness, for God to overlook sins, Israel would look up. And now, with Jesus on earth forgiving sins and restoring people, now for forgiveness, people just have to look out. All they have to do is look upon Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, who Himself would take away the sins of the world. This is something entirely new. And it takes some getting used to. Uh, and this story is, is meant to help us uh, with that. That being said, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. This is Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 7. And I'm going to read through verse 20. Now Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return, the apostles told him all they had done. And he took them, and he withdrew to a town called Bethsaida. 
When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them, and he spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, well, we have no more than five loaves and, and two fish, unless we're to go and buy food for all these people, for there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples as set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now, I'm not just saying this because I'm a pastor, and I'm supposed to, but perhaps one of the most important questions that you can ask and seek to find the answer to is this question. And the question is in this passage, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Asking that and answering that is one of the most important things we can do um, in our life. Uh, in, in this passage, we have the richest of kings and at the same time the poorest of fishermen um, theorizing, considering theoretically who Jesus is. And here's, here's what I love about the way that Luke writes his gospel. Um, he, he's very intentional. He's very strategic. Nothing's accidental. Nothing's done by happenstance. Notice how this passage is set up. On the front end, we have Herod wondering who Jesus is. And at the other bookend, at the bottom of this passage, we have the disciples being asked and wondering, theoretically, who is Jesus? And again, this, this just kind of points to the, brilliant, the brilliance of Luke. Um, while they're all theorizing as, as to who Jesus is, right smack dab in the middle, um, Jesus is going to give us an answer. But his answer isn't going to be theoretical, it's going to be sensory. It's going to be tangible. So while these two groups are thinking about Jesus is, he's going to show us who he is by his actions. We're going to see who Jesus is um, with our senses by, by means of taste. He's going to help us answer this question, who is Jesus and what is he up to in the Gospels uh, in looking at this, uh, this miracle, uh, this feeding? Three things uh, I want to highlight this morning if you're keeping notes. Uh, first, uh, he's the provider. First point. Second point, he provides supernaturally. And then lastly, he provides generously. First, he's the provider. Second, he's he provides supernaturally, and then lastly, he provides generously. First, uh, the provider. Something we know about God is that he's always been in the food business. 
Um, you know, God and food is not just something that kind of happens accidentally in the New Testament. God has always been in the catering business. Go back to uh, the very first book, the very first chapters in the Bible itself. In the creation of Adam and Eve, God also created this, this garden, and within this garden is a plethora of food that God says, this is for you to take, to eat, to savor, and to enjoy. Enjoy all of it, save one, all of it is yours. Uh, it was a place of great you know, beauty visually, uh, but also a, a place of food and provision. That was by God's design that He gave food. And the next book in the Bible is the book of Exodus, and it's that, that famous story of God using Moses to lead God's people out of Egypt. And, you know, really early in uh, to their exodus uh, from Egypt, um, Israel begins to complain. And they complain to Moses, you know, did God bring us out here just to starve? I mean, we had food when we were in Egypt. Yeah, we were slaves, but we had food. Did you bring us out here to die? And so what does God do from heaven? Supernaturally, He provides food to His people. Um, food that was sweet, this manna, this bread from heaven. Did you know that this, this passage here in the New Testament, the feeding of the 5,000, did you know it has an Old Testament parallel? Uh, in 2 Kings chapter 4, uh, Elisha uh, and one of his servants uh, need to feed about 100 people. And the servant says, well, we only have about 20 loaves of bread. And so what does Elisha do? He prays, he blesses it, he tells the servant, this is what the Lord has asked us to do, go and feed them. And the servant comes back and he's gobsmacked and his eyes, you know, you can see the whites of his eyes. And he said, not only do we feed them, but we've got leftovers. Not only has, has God, you know, been the provider of, of food, he's always been in the catering business of, of feeding and taking care of his people by means of food and provision. He's always been in the food business, so it comes as no surprise that when we get to this text, that there's, uh, there's 5,000 people, 5,000 men in this story, uh, that God would do the same thing for them, right? It would not surprise us uh, for God to feed them. But, but here's what does surprise us. Uh, here's what's um, odd and, and slightly uncomfortable uh, in this passage, and maybe you noticed it. Uh, look at verse 13, what Jesus says. But Jesus said to them, you give him something to eat. And, you know, you can kind of sense the discomfort there. I'm, I'm sure it was quiet for just a moment. It goes from uncomfortable to awkward. If you have your Bible, go back to verse 3. It's not printed uh, in your bulletin, but verse 3 says in chapter 9 uh, that before the disciples left for Bethsaida, Jesus very, very clearly directed them and said, don't bring with you a staff. Don't bring with you a change of clothes. Don't bring with you money or food. Drop what you're doing. Just go. Take no provisions. Fast forward just a few verses. Jesus says, you feed them. You take care of them. Is Jesus, <laughs> is Jesus being cruel? Um, is, is he being indifferent uh, towards his disciples? No. But before we answer the question, you know, why is Jesus doing this, pause here for a moment. Do, do you sympathize uh, with the disciples? When you hear what Jesus is asking them to do, 
Um, do you hear a, a part of your story in that? Um, when, I, when I read this, I was kind of struck with, with how much this story reminds me of the Christian life. And here's what I mean. In, in some ways, what God is asking you to do as His church borders on the impossible or the improbable. And at the same time, uh, do you feel under-resourced? Do you feel like you don't have a lot? Do you feel empty? God is asking us in this Christian life to almost do the impossible, the improbable with very, very little means. With very, very little provision. That felt like the Christian life to me. I could sympathize with the disciples here. I go, I feel like that. You know, when you're trying to plant a church, it's like, that's, that's, that's raking mud uphill in some ways. I mean, maybe you feel that way in parenting. How am I supposed to be, you know, a godly parent that, that's balanced, that's consistent, and I just need more hours in the day, and I need more patience. My patience bank is empty. I'm supposed to fight temptation. I'm supposed to fight these struggles, these, these struggles, I, you know, that, that I wrestle with in public and in privately, but I feel like my, my strength bank is empty. I feel like I have to do the impossible with nothing. Do you ever feel that way like the disciples? And, and, and in bringing that out in the story, is, is, is God being cruel to us? No, um, that's not Luke's intent, nor is it Jesus' intent here in this passage. He's not being cruel. What he is doing for the disciples and what he is doing for us is he's preparing them first for his departure. Jesus knows um, how the story is going to unfold. Jesus knows what's going to happen to him. Jesus knows that he's not going to be there forever. And he knows that a helper is going to come, the Holy Spirit. And so when Jesus leaves, what he's telling the disciples is, is this, and we kind of use it you know, figuratively um, when we talk about the body of Christ, like we're, we're to be the hands of Jesus. What, what Jesus here is communicating to the disciples is that at some point, you are very literally going to be the hands that are going to provide food for people. Because I'm going to be in heaven, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, I am going to strengthen you. I'm going to provide for you so that it's, it's your hands. You are going to be the hands of God to these people. Because I'm not going to be here. This job is going to be yours. So, so in, in asking this, this request of, of Jesus is, is, is not meant to be cruel. It's, it's meant to empower the disciples. It's meant to say that what I am doing here, you are going to do as well. And even Jesus said this in the gospel, that the apostles and some of the followers of Jesus, they're going to do some of the things that I do, but at the same time, you're going to do things greater than I did. That's Jesus talking. And being the hands of and the feet of God. You're going to do things better and greater and more cosmic than Jesus did in his ministry. He's preparing for his departure. He's empowering his people. He provides, but he also provides supernaturally. Notice uh, Luke's narration of the story. Again, he's very, very intentional. Notice how much, notice what level of provisions we start with in verse 13. Look back at the text. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. But they said, 
we have no more than five loaves and two fish. That's meager provisions. That is a perfect meal for the Patton family. That's great for six people. The kids will take the bread. Paige and I love seafood. That will cover a family of six nicely, right? Meager provisions. Luke also says that there's 5,000 men that have followed Jesus and the disciples uh, out into the wilderness. And, you know, this is just kind of a way that people counted in the New Testament. What's not accounted for here in this passage is women and children. So it's more likely that the number uh, of the crowd that's, that's present here for this miracle is, is not 5,000, it's closer to 10,000, if you include everybody. Sometimes you just counted people by, uh, by, by men, by, by family heads. It's like when we say, like, well, we've got, you know, 20 families here. Well, really what that means is, no, we've got, like, 70 people or, you know, 100 people. Uh, it's just the way they counted. So it's, it's 10,000 people, all right? So you've got five loaves, two fish, somewhere close to 10,000 people. And notice how Luke ends the story, verse 17. And they all, Jesus, the disciples, the men, the women, the children, they all ate and were satisfied. What happened between the five and the two and verse 17, what happened? Did you notice? Jesus prayed. Uh, look, back at the, uh, look back at what he does specifically. Verse 16, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing over them. Jesus on earth looked up to heaven to God his Father, his provider, prayed, blessed the meal, and somehow, supernaturally, uh, this is not an error in recording, you know, by Luke. He didn't, you know, forget to add a couple zeros, nor is Luke, you know, uh, fabricating a, a false story here um, to, to self-promote or, or to start rumors. No, this is just one of Jesus's many earthly miracles, and it's a miracle through through prayer. Let's take a moment and let's remember why miracles were such an important part of Jesus' ministry. Why Jesus performed miracles. There's a number of theories out there. You remember that scene in, in Lord of the Rings where, um, and this is my Lord of the Rings reference uh, for this year. I know I'm burning it early. Sorry. Um, Gandalf's coming into the Shire and all the kids, you know, because they know him by reputation, are, are following behind his cart and, and they're, they're almost whispering to each other, please, Gandalf, fireworks, fireworks, right? And so with a kind of like a twinkle of his nose and a wink of his eye, you know, fireworks go off, off the back of his cart. It, it wows, it amazes, it surprises, um, but then they're gone. Um, you know, is, is Jesus, you know, like a glorified Gandalf? Is he doing this to impress people? Is it, does he do miracles to try to coerce people into doing what he wants them to do? no. That's not why he's doing it. Another theory is, you know, Jesus performs miracles um, because they're showing us, you know, his dual nature. You know, yes, he's human, but he's also God. And miracles show us that Jesus is God. Well, there's a problem with that. Because other people in the Scriptures, Old Testament and New, perform miracles. But they're not God. So why are miracles such an important part 
of, of, of Luke's account of Jesus in his public ministry, what are the purposes of miracles? I like how Tim Keller says it. He says it best. He says, when, we, when modern people see and, and think or, or read these miracles in the New Testament, what we assume is, is that Jesus is kind of like suspending the natural order. You know, all the laws of physics and the laws of nature that we know, in these miracles, Jesus is just kind of like suspending it, like he's hitting the pause button. That's what we assume that miracles are. But miracles have actually a different purpose in Jesus' ministry. It's not to suspend nature, but it's to show us, it's to display for us the restoration of the natural order. Not to suspend the natural order, but to show us the restoration of it. We, we think of miracles as the exception, but, but Jesus is coming on the scene and saying, actually, no. When, when, when people who are lame begin to walk, when the, when the blind are, are, are given sight again, when those who are bleeding and when the blood can't stop and you touch the hem of my robe and the, and the bleeding ceases, and when sins are forgiven and when people are saved, what you're actually seeing is the new normal. What you're seeing is not the exception. What you're seeing is the rule. Jesus said, I'm making all things new, that there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth, and I want you to see what it looks like. I want you to get a taste of it. I want you to get a feel for it, because the brokenness, the pain, the ugliness, the blindness, the sickness, everything we hate about this world is temporary, and it's going away. Let me show you what the new normal is going to look like. Have sight. Stand up and walk. Your sins are forgiven. Are you hungry? There's more than enough. He's showing us what's coming in little snapshots, in little pictures, in little stories, in little miracles. We're getting to see what he's creating and what he's doing. He's the provider, he's the provider of something supernaturally good and beautiful. One writer says, miracles don't belong in this world um, because they point us to another one, this world that is to come. And that's all through the provision of Christ. Lastly, he provides generously. One writer says this uh, about the church. He says, you know, we need a theology of leftovers. We need a theology of leftovers. What does he, what does he mean by that? Again, Notice, how, notice Luke's progression here in the story. We start with the five and the two. Verse 13, five loaves of bread, two fish. There's 10,000 people. Jesus prays, and he has people sit down in groups, and he has the disciples kind of set it all up, and he says, now go pass out the baskets. Uh, look how things end in verse 17. Not only did they all eat, and not only were all satisfied, last part of verse 17, and what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. They didn't just eat by. They just didn't ration and just go, you know, hey, you know, just, let's just get enough to, you know, just to put something in your stomach just to keep it from, from rumbling and, and from being awkward and from other people. There was so much food that they had leftovers. They couldn't eat it all. Um, they weren't just sitting around like a picnic. What, what, what Luke is trying to say here is that they reclined like they would recline at a table. At some point, some of them rolled over and just said, I, I can't eat. 
anymore. And undoubtedly, because of the crowd, some probably had no clue whatsoever that this started with five and two. But again, because of, of, of who God is, the provider, and what He loves to do for His people, supernaturally provide for them. Not only does He provide supernaturally, He provides generously. So, what is our theology of leftovers? Uh, what are the 12 baskets full of resources uh, that we have, that the church has? When we find ourselves in near impossible situations, again, isn't that the Christian life? Um, it's nothing less than that. God is asking us to do the, what, what feels like the impossible, what feels like the improbable. Our temptation is to go, we have nothing to offer, so therefore we do nothing. What this story tells us about Jesus and about His provision is not only is there enough, but it's supernaturally provided through prayer. And guess what? Your mind won't be able to perceive the goodness that the Lord has prepared for you. It's going to be more than you need. There's going to be enough. That's the kind of God He is, beyond what we could ask or imagine. Uh, two things, as we kind of wrap up here, uh, two things to consider uh, in application. Uh, the first is this. Something I, I love about this story and what I love about the Gospels is it teaches us it's a very important phrase that, that to Jesus, matter matters. Matter matters. Um, sometimes, you know, we, we get locked up in, in a Christianity that only wants to deal with, with spiritual things, things that are theoretical, things that are internal, things that are thoughtful. Uh, but this, this new heavens and this new earth that Jesus has begun and is, is creating is tangible. You can touch it. You can see it. This, this earth is not going anywhere. Our, our bodies are going away, and we're, we're getting new bodies. They're going to be tangible. You can touch them. They will have flesh on them. Jesus showed us what the resurrected body looks like and what it could do after His crucifixion, after His resurrection. This world, the physical nature of it, is not going anywhere. It's good. Matter matters to God. And this is where the gluttons and the ascetics get it wrong. Gluttony says, hey, this life is all there is. You only got one life, YOLO, FOMO, you know, pick your cultural expression, right? You better get it all in now because at some point this is going away. So eat, drink, be merry, feast, burn it all in this life because there's nothing afterwards. That's what the glutton says, and, and what the story tells us is, is the exact opposite. No, this is the, the, these meals and what's physical, what's happening in this world, is, it's, we're not meant to indulge in it in the flesh. We're meant to indulge in it uh, for worship to God because it's God who provides it for us. It's God who gives it joyfully, supernaturally, generously. Food. The gluttons don't, don't get it right, but the ascetics don't get it right either. 
You know, we, we can kind of do this. You know, we can kind of, you know, take a, a, a version of, of the monks and, and kind of incorporate it in, into Christianity and go, let me remove everything that's physical, everything that's tangible from me, and in doing so, my, my spiritual life is going to thrive, and it's going to grow, and it's going to flourish. By rejecting the physical, by rejecting matter, and just focusing on the spiritual, and God's saying, that's not how I made things. And yes, there are really good times in our Christian life where we need to fast and where we separate ourselves you know, from earthly and, and carnal pleasures, but that's for a period. But, but God made food joyfully, and He gave it to us so that in the eating of it, we might find joy in God. We're meant to feast. We're meant to celebrate. Again, notice in this passage, in the midst of, of two groups of people theorizing over who Jesus is, he says, I'm going to show you by means of food and a party who I am. I'm a provider. I give good stuff. And I give more than you need. Matter matters to God. Uh, the, the second is this. James, uh, the writer of the New Testament letter, he understands God, God's provision very well. He said in chapter 1 that every good gift and every perfect gift is from your Father in heaven. Now, we've read that. Maybe some of us have that verse memorized, but do you understand what James is saying in that one sentence? Everything you have, that means your job, that means your genetics, that means your orientation, Everything you have has been given to you, provided to you by God. You have not earned any of it. You have not deserved any of it. All of it has been given to you because God loves you and He treasures you. And in a father-like, generous kind of way, He has lavished good things upon you. The older we get, the more difficult it is for that truth to really sink into our hearts. Because there's parts of us that want to say, well, yes, you know, God gave me a family, you know, a, a great life here, but, you know, that promotion, that was me. Uh, that lake house, that was me. Uh, my kids all ended up well. Yeah, um, that was God and me. <laughs> here again, James' words, every good and perfect gift is from your Father in heaven. Everything you have, everything you own, everything you've lost was given to you out of joy by the Father. And if that is true, that means two things. Number one, that, that should make us a humble people. Because though we work, and, and a lot of us work very, very hard, everything we have is from God. So that eliminates bragging, that eliminates classes, that eliminates boasting. That should make us humble. When we see people who don't have what we have, our assumption should not mean is that we're better than that person. But we do that all the time. It should make us humble. But at the same time, it should create within us an endearment of God the Father to be so fatherly-like provided for should, should endear us to Him 
we, we, should, we should feel stirred up in our hearts to go, if, if we're so undeserving and, and God is so gracious, so generous, so supernatural with his gifts, gifts attack the heart. That should change the way you feel about the Father in heaven. That should endear you to him. It should humble us. It should endear us. Jesus prayed. What does this tell us about our prayer life? It should change the quantity of our prayers for sure. Again, I I don't say this, you know, passively. What God calls us to in this life feels sometimes impossible and improbable, but guess what? He has not left us without resource, and Jesus shows us. He prays in this passage. Did you know we can pray too for things? Prayer is, is not just something we do before work. Prayer is the work. Prayer is the work. Asking is the work. Lord, provide. I don't know how you're going to do it, but provide supernaturally, out of left field, beyond what my mind can comprehend. The quantity of our prayers should go up, as should the quality. Again, going back to the book of James, James says, you know, there's a, there's a kind of prayer that asks There's a a kind of asking of God that outwardly we say, you know, God, would you do these things for us? Would you provide? Would you be generous? Would you work another miracle? But inwardly we're saying, yeah, that'll never happen. I'm supposed to pray, so I'm going to pray, but inwardly God's not going to do this. He's tired of of me, you know. my, My needs are just a blip on his radar. He doesn't have his eye on me. Why would I bother him with this, this little need of mine when there's so many other, you know, difficult things going on across this world? I feel, I feel like it's kind of stupid to ask him for something. Um, and so we don't. Um, so not only should the, uh, the quantity of our prayers increase, but should the quality. I mean, any father, any parent in this room, when you're asked, you know, if a child comes to you and says, you know, um, dad or mom, will, will you play? But I know you're going to say no. As a parent, you'd be like, dad gummit, don't ask like that, <laughs> right? Ask expectantly, ask hopefully, ask joyfully. Not with cynicism, not with doubt. Fathers want to be trusted. Um, fathers want to be enjoyed. Fathers want to open their hands and they want to give, and they want to surprise, and they want to give, you know, beyond what you could ask or imagine. That's what good fathers do, and that's what our Father wants to do with us. So the quality, the quantity of our asking, let's give those a boost. So when it comes to this, 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 this feeling of this insurmountable task of living the Christian life, sharing the gospel with our friends, overcoming, you know, sin in our own heart. What do we learn about Jesus, and what do we learn about this, this kingdom that he is providing? Is that he's not done giving out gifts. He's not done providing for his people. He's generous. He'll do it supernaturally. He'll blow your mind. He has great provisions for his people. Let's take that with us this week. Let me pray. Father, would the words of my mouth, and now the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. You, O Lord, who are our rock and our redeemer. And we pray this all in Christ's name.
Amen.